<laughs> I like it. Anybody? Anybody? What is it? Yeah, who wrote it? Yeah. This whole series in Ecclesiastes, I couldn't help but think Coolio and Solomon could have collaborated on some pretty awesome material together. So dark and broody. Solomon sounds like he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death a lot. So we've been in this series on Ecclesiastes, and we're so glad that you've joined us this morning. My name is Sarah Hammond, and I get to serve here at Vista as the associate community pastor. And so we're going to continue in our series this morning. Um, Solomon has um, examined the human experience at length. He's gone to great effort to kind of walk through this experiment on life, and he has seen a lot of difficult truths. And he has responded in various ways to those difficult truths, hasn't he? He's tried everything. He has had wealth and wisdom. He's tried hard work, and he's tried utter laziness. He has tried uh, living well and righteously. And he's also just thrown his morals out the window and said, forget it all. Solomon's tried a lot. And no matter what he's tried, he found that it all came to the same end. A chasing of the wind, vanity, meaninglessness. Now Solomon says that it's meaningless because in all of his pursuits, what he has learned is that you can't control the outcomes. You don't get to control the hand that life deals you. And this is a difficult reality for Solomon to come to terms with. And it's difficult for us too, isn't it? Because why? We like control. We like control. And I think if we, as we read the words that Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, and as we think about the fact that we can't control reality, and we don't get to write our stories the exact way that we want them to be written, it can be a little unhinging, can't it? Because we know that it's true. We know that it's true, and we want this control. And that truth, that we don't have it, it sort of peels back the layers, this illusion that we have of control that somehow brings us some sense of security. And it reveals to us what's really there, which is this anticipated collapse. Do you ever feel like it's all too much? Like you're just barely hanging on to the hamster wheel of life? Like at any moment, everything could come crashing down. We don't get to master or control reality. We're in Ecclesiastes 7 this morning, if you want to turn there and be ready. And Solomon, he presses down on this already difficult truth by making it clear that whether we face prosperity or adversity, God is in control of those things. We can't predict and we can't persuade the outcomes there. The first 12 verses of Ecclesiastes, they are a set of Proverbs that Solomon writes that sort of give us advice on how to live wisely and well in the face of prosperity and adversity. Um, they're a little bit hard to decipher if you read them. It's a little confusing. Take verse 2, for example. He says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Now, I don't know about you, but I cannot think of one single time that I would rather cry than eat. Crying might lead to eating, but it still would not be preferred for me. He says, sorrow is better than laughter in verse 3. 
It just, it just doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? I don't get it. It's like Solomon is writing in this code and I am missing my spy decoder lens through which I can read and understand what he's saying. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to skip to the very heart of the text because I think that Solomon is revealing something important to us that will help us understand what he means in the beginning of this chapter, but also throughout a lot of the book of Ecclesiastes. And so y'all read along with me. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes 7. We'll read first 13 through 15. This is what he says. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider that God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. So Solomon reminds us that we don't get to control our reality, and he does this by making it abundantly clear that it is God alone who writes both of these things. God is the author of both the day of prosperity and the day of authority. And this is, this is an, a hard thing for us to accept. I think we can get behind God being the author of prosperity, can't we? God being the one who's the giver of good things and the giver of good gifts. That makes sense, right? We can accept that. He's God. Why wouldn't he be the giver of those things? But it's a little bit harder for us to comprehend God being the author of adversity, isn't it? Solomon has seen the righteous, wise man die, and he has seen the wicked man prosper. And it's hard for us to accept what feels so unjust. I think it's why we ask the question, like, why do bad things happen to good people? I think it's why we get angry at God and we feel disappointed and frustrated when Things don't go the way that we want them to. When our life takes turns that we don't expect. These are understandable questions. God is the author of both prosperity and adversity. And this is just a really hard truth for us to come to terms with, isn't it? It's a hard truth for us to grasp. But one thing that Solomon has recognized in this is that our response to both adversity and prosperity can influence the effect that those things have on our lives. Let's read in verse 16. That's what he says. Be not overly righteous and don't make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So if we don't have the ability to control the outcomes, then it begs the question, why does it matter how we live? Why does any of it matter? And Solomon is sort of processing this question, and it's really the root behind a lot of his feeling of everything is meaningless. If I can't control the outcomes and everything is meaningless, why does it matter how we live? And yet, if we read closely and we pay attention, Solomon is telling us here, how we live matters greatly. It matters greatly because our response to both adversity and prosperity can influence and affect and have consequences on our lives. He specifically has seen that when we face adversity or prosperity, there are two ways that we can be tempted to respond, either self-righteousness 
or embracing sin altogether. Again, he has seen the righteous man die. And he's seen the evil man live. And it just doesn't feel fair. Does life ever feel unfair to you? It doesn't seem right. And when we face the injustice of life, the inevitable injustice, the perceived injustice of life, it can be hard to respond well, can it? And that's what he's identifying here. There's a temptation when we face this injustice in our lives to respond with either self-righteousness or just throwing the towel in, embracing the sin. Let's read it again. He says, don't be overly righteous. Don't make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now, Solomon is not encouraging us here to a half-hearted obedience to God. That's certainly not what he's doing. And Solomon is not advocating for a little bit of sin in our lives. No, he's warning us here. He's warning us here, when you face the injustice of life, be careful not to respond and react with these two potential responses because they can have severe and lasting consequences. Our choices, how we respond to adversity and prosperity can have severe and lasting consequences. Let's look at the first one. Don't be overly righteous. Don't make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? The key to understanding what Solomon means here is in the word destroy. The Hebrew verb here, or the Hebrew word, is a verb that is pronounced shamem, shamem, and it means to be appalled or dismayed. So what he's saying here is this, don't depend on your righteousness or your wisdom to persuade or, or control God's blessing or adversity in your life. If I expect God to perform a certain way because of my meager self-righteousness, then I will at some point become appalled or dismayed at God for not giving me what I want. Or I'll become disappointed in God for not doing what I asked him to do. And if I'm being honest, it is really easy for this mentality to sneak into my life. God, I've been obedient. I've been good. I've done what you asked me to do. Why did you allow this? Why did you let this happen? Surely you will tilt the scales in my favor, God. And often we don't even realize that we have this way of thinking until we are facing adversity head on. And we have to come to terms with the fact that we don't have control. And my meager self-righteousness is just filthy rags. Let's look at the second response in verse 17. He says, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Listen, some sin in some capacity is unavoidable so long as we have on these fleshly bodies. There will be sin in our lives. But if we allow the inevitable sin in our lives to make its home there, to get comfortable, to move in, it will ultimately lead us to more and more sin and to foolish living. And he's saying here, it will take your life. Why should you die early? Because that's what sin wants to do, isn't it? It wants to take our very lives. Because sin is never satisfied. And you will never be satisfied in it. 
One of my favorite Bible teachers, Christy McClellan, she says that God doesn't hate sin because you broke a rule. God hates sin because he knows that sin will break you. That's just plain, good gospel sense. It's foolish to choose sin. If you continue to choose sin, it will cost you your life. If not your physical life, it will steal every ounce of joy and meaning and purpose that you have. It will break you. He says in verse 18, it's good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. He tells us this hint, how to avoid responding in these two ways when you face the injustice of life. How do we do it? He says, the one who fears God will come out from both of them or will avoid these two. The one who fears God. This is so interesting to me. Fear has been a long time companion of mine since I was a very young child. I came by it honestly. My grandmother, she, bless her, owned the most beautiful jewelry. As a child, I would love looking at all the things that she had that my grandfather would bring her from his world travels and his naval deployments. But she never wore any of it because she was terrified that if she did, it would entice someone to mug her. So she never wore it, this beautiful jewelry. I came by it honestly. My mom, I can remember as a child riding in the car with my mom when we would come up to a stoplight if we had not already locked the door, she would say, quick, everybody lock your door. We'd go around locking all the doors. Some of y'all don't know what that means because you don't remember that cars didn't always have automatic locks, but there was a time. So we would lock all the doors really fast. She taught me how to put my keys in between my knuckles. Some of you know this one. So that, you know, if I'm in the parking lot and someone tries to attack me, I can, you know, like give them a back scratch or something. I don't really know what that was going to do. But she taught me that. I came by this fear so honestly. And you know, there is absolutely space for caution and safety, so I get that. But there's also just completely irrational fear. Take my fear of wolves, for example. My childhood fear of wolves, I've grown up. I was terrified of wolves. It's really hard for me to explain to you just how terrified I was of wolves from probably the age of six to about the age of 11. They haunted my dreams and they paralyzed my waking thoughts. I was terrified. Now there were some things that I had to learn and some things that I had to believe that would help me to put this fear in its rightful place. I'll tell you a few. First, I learned that wolves live in the woods. They're not native to East Texas, specifically where I grew up. They're also not native to underneath my bed, which is what I thought. I had to learn that wolves don't have thumbs and therefore cannot open bedroom windows or bedroom doors to come and get me. Most importantly, I had to believe and I, became, I began to believe that wolves lack the mental capacity to be able to pre-plan an attack on me by sneaking into our home in the middle of the day when no one was looking, only to hide underneath my bed and quietly wait for me so that at just the right moment, they could devour the toes off of my feet that I was too afraid to dangle off the bed. It's not possible. They can't do it. 
And I finally began to believe this. I finally began to believe it. A few weeks ago, my family and I went to uh, the zoo, and we came and we saw, what do you think? This pack of wolves. And as a grown woman, I stood there looking at these wolves, and y'all, I was just in awe of them. These beautiful, magnificent creatures. Isn't it amazing how truth puts fear in its rightful place? I was thinking about this several years ago when my now 12-year-old daughter was three. She developed this irrational fear of eels. eels. She was convinced that eels lived in her bed and she therefore refused to sleep there. Now, naturally, I recalled my own fear of, of wolves, my childhood fear, and how knowledge and truth had helped me to work through that. And so we gave this a try. She and I learned everything we could about eels. We learned where they live, what they eat. We looked at pictures of eels. There are actually a lot of terrifying pictures of eels out there, so that one kind of backfired on me, but we watched videos of eels. I answered every question the best that I could on a topic that I previously knew nothing about beyond what Wildcrats had taught me. And do you know what? She went to bed that night more confident than ever that there was not one eel waiting for her there. And what's more, for about the next seven years after that, if you asked her what she wanted to be when she grew up, she would say, a marine biologist. She went from a paralyzing fear of eels to a long-running, especially for a child, desire to work in and for the very habitat that these terrifying creatures lived in. Isn't that something? Knowledge and truth had moved her into a deep love and reverence and respect for all things, all living things that lurked beneath the surface of the waters. She fell in love with them. And y'all, this, this is what it means to fear God. Truth puts fear in its rightful place. To fear God is not to be afraid of him as if he were some angry, disappointed monster in the sky waiting and lurking and watching to devour us. That's not what it means to fear God. No, we are invited to know him intimately. Knowledge and truth of God, when we believe it to our very core, it leads us to a deep love and appreciation, a deep awe of him. The incredible thing about this truthful knowing of God is that it grows within us. And when it does that, it gives birth to the very thing that we need to live this life well and to navigate the adversity and handle the prosperity. This reverent and right fear of God gives birth to wisdom. All throughout scriptures, we see a direct link between wisdom and fear. One example is Proverbs 9, 10. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. We need wisdom to be able to navigate this complicated life. We need wisdom to be able to accept that we cannot control the outcomes and we don't get to write our stories the way that we want them to be written. Wisdom says, God, this is hard and I don't like it and I don't understand it, but help me to see my life through your lens. Wisdom said, God, 
This is not my life. It's yours. So everything I have, my time, my money, my very life, it is yours, and I have nothing to lose. This, this truthful knowing of God, it leads us to the wisdom that we need to navigate this life with a godly lens. He invites us to know him in his word. Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. This book that we can so easily take for granted, this book right here, it is full of life and truth and wisdom And that truth has the power to convict us and reveal who God is to us. It will cut us deep to the core, his word. When a follower of Jesus reads God's word, the living God who dwells within us, it intercepts with the living word and it writes truth in us. And that truth puts fear in its rightful place. And y'all, that's when wisdom is born in us. And it all starts with a truthful knowing of him. Solomon wrestled at length with the human experience. He saw the righteous man perish and the evil man live a long life. He experienced firsthand that there is a divine order to this life that is so far outside of our ability to understand and we can't control it. And yet somehow, despite this, how we live our life matters because how we live our life can bring on severe and lasting consequences. If I think I can control God's hand of blessing or avoid adversity because of my self-righteous living, then my faith in my life may be destroyed by destruction and disappointment in God. If I think that I can give my life over to sinful living and, and worldly pursuits, then I may very well just die early because of my own foolish choices. So how we live absolutely matters. But I believe that what Solomon is wanting us to see here is a little more. I think he's wanting us to see how wisdom can can actually create space for both prosperity and adversity to be useful and even beneficial in our lives. Knowing the truth about God so that we can have reverent and right fear of him, it leads us to be able to put on a godly lens and view things the way he does because God's ways are completely nonsensical to us, aren't they? Sometimes we just don't understand. And godly wisdom that comes from knowing and fearing him, it enables us to look into the face of adversity with hopeful expectation, waiting and watching for him to show up in the difficult and be faithful to who he says he is. Because when we fear God, we don't have to fear adversity. This is the lens that we need to be able to understand these earlier Proverbs that Solomon wrote in the first 12 verses. We are not going to go through each of these this morning, but I want to give you an example of what I mean. And so we're going to end this morning where we started with Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2. He says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Solomon, in his God-given wisdom, has chosen death, the, the inevitable adversity that all of us will face. 
He's chosen death to help us see how God can use even the most difficult of things in our lives to draw us to himself and do meaningful work in our hearts. He reminds us that death is the destiny of every single one of us. Somehow death is one of those things that we just don't want to think about, isn't it? Like if I don't think about it, then maybe it won't happen. But Solomon says there's wisdom in thinking about death. There's wisdom in in thinking about the brevity of life. Because when we do this, we're reminded that not only is it my destiny, it's coming for all of us. But it wakes us up to live a meaningful life. It snaps us out of meaningless pursuits. It reminds us that there is something more important than just living my life for myself. Thinking about death helps us remember that. If, if death has hit close to home for you, you might have experienced this. If you've ever lost a loved one, has, has not heaven felt so much more real and close than before? And did not the things that felt so important before now almost seem pointless, meaningless? It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting because this is the most true and real place on this earth. And wisdom will tell you that the house of mourning is strangely, oddly, where our hearts can come alive to true meaning. The house of feasting or amusement is a place of meaningless, empty pleasures. We might not understand the whys and the hows, and y'all, we will certainly wrestle with his ways. But wisdom whispers to us in the deepest places of our pain and our adversity, and it tells us that in the house of mourning, meaning invades meaninglessness. Meaning invades meaninglessness. In Psalm 90, 12, Moses prays, God, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. We cannot master or control reality. We just can't. We don't get to write our own stories the way that we want them to be written, but I believe with every fiber of my being that God weeps with us in adversity and he celebrates with us in prosperity. We don't get to know the ways of God, but y'all, we do get to know him. We get to know him. To know him is to fear him, to be in awe of him, so that we might get a heart of wisdom and navigate this life that he's given us well. Let's pray together. God, sometimes this life feels so unjust. And God, we acknowledge that sometimes the things that you're doing, we, we don't get it. We don't like it. We don't want it. And it feels impossible to say that you're good, that you're in control. And God, only a right and truthful knowing of you can shift our hearts to wisely consider this life. Only knowing you in truth and in full and believing that truth to my core That is what moves us to be able to accept that you are in charge, that you're in control, and that that is a good thing. As the band comes and leads us in a time to respond, would you just take this space to consider 
What have I wanted to hold for myself? What have I wanted so badly to control? What have I struggled to give up to God? What have I been, what have I, have I been angry about that God would not do for me? He knows, he understands, he loves you. And take a minute, take time to surrender that. Ask for wisdom to move your heart into the space to accept what we can't control. Just take a minute to respond.